Let's pray before we have the Bible reading. Dear Lord, thanks for bringing us here today, and Lord, I pray that as we listen to your word, we'll hear in our hearts what you wish to say to us through it. And as David gives his sermon, you really open up your word to us. In Jesus' name, Amen. There was a certain man from Ramatham, a Zuphite, from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroam the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Peninnah and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Once, when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly, and she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, If you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart and her lips were moving but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, How long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, Go in peace and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, May your servant find favour in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning they arose and worshipped before the Lord and then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, Because I asked the Lord for him. When her husband Elkanah went up with all his family to offer the annual sacrifice to the Lord and to fulfill his vow, Hannah did not go. She said to her husband, After the boy is weaned, I will take him and present him before the Lord, and he will live there always. Do what seems best to you, her husband Elkanah told her. Stay here until you have weaned him, only may the Lord make good his word. So the woman stayed at home and nursed her son until she had weaned him. After he was weaned, she took the boy with her, young as he was, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. When the bull had been sacrificed, they brought the boy to Eli, and she said to him, Pardon me, my Lord, as surely you live, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. 
I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord. For his whole life he will be given over to the Lord, and he worshipped the Lord there. These are the words of the Lord. Well, good morning. It's great to see all of you here this morning, and it's great to be back in person. Uh, please do have your Bibles with you, uh, even on the iPhone, as we uh, start our series on 1 Samuel. Uh, as we begin, what and I pray for us. Lord Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your goodness and grace towards us in our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that the Old Testament is your scriptures, your word for us this morning. And so, Father, as we open up your word and study 1 Samuel over the coming weeks, may you help us to know you, to love you, and to obey you more in Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, have you ever read the story about the group of British boys who were shot down? Uh, it was during World War II. The Nazis were relentlessly bombing Britain, and so a plane is sent to evacuate a group of schoolboys. But as it flies over the Atlantic Ocean, it's shot down and crashes on a remote tropical island. Everyone dies on impact except for a group of schoolboys. Uh, they're now all alone on a deserted island. There isn't a single adult to take care of them. There isn't anyone uh, to keep them in check. And worse of all, there isn't a McDonald's in sight. And so what were they going to eat? How were they going to survive? Well, the boys came together and worked towards order and civilization. They elect Ralph to be the leader. And Ralph appoints Jack to lead a group of boys to go and hunt for food. They devise a plan to be rescued and they build huts for shelter. The boys manage to start off well. Uh, but before long, they descend into savagery, violence, and chaos. Instead of managing the signal fire, they manage to play instead. And so the fire engulfs the forest, and a boy is burned to death. But that wasn't the worst of it. Instead of working together under Ralph's leadership, the primitive society splits into two warring factions. Ralph continues to lead a group marked by decency and cooperation, but the other group is led by Jack, marked by a lust for power and violence. Eventually, Jack and his tribe hunt Ralph down like an animal. They chase him with spears, they try to kill him, and eventually they even light the forest on fire to smoke Ralph out, out of hiding. And it works. Ralph is left with no choice but to escape the fire. He runs onto the open beach. He's completely exhausted. He's completely exposed and vulnerable. He knows his days are numbered. He knows Jack and his friends, his hunters, are after him and not far behind to kill him. But Ralph can't run anymore. He's exhausted. He collapses on the beach. What do you think happens next? Despite their best efforts, the boys' attempts at work towards civilization didn't pan out so well, did it? Their primitive society quickly descended into a crisis, a crisis of law and order, a crisis of justice and leadership. It's a terrifying situation to be in, isn't it? Every boy did whatever they wanted. Whether you're Ralph or Jack or any of the other schoolboys, it's not a situation you'd want to find yourself in. And in a similar way, that's the sort of situation Israel found itself in about 3,000 years ago. 
But they weren't a bunch of schoolboys lost on a remote paradise island. They were God's promised people in God's promised land. Yet they faced a similar crisis of law and order, a crisis of justice and leadership. You see, after God rescues the Israelites from slavery in Egypt through Moses, God leads the Israelites to the promised land through Joshua. But after they settle into the promised land, they don't live as God's people under God's rule in God's land. As a small and relatively young nation, they quickly descend into sin and rebellion and at times anarchy. Instead of driving the Canaanites out of the land, they adopt the practices of the Canaanites, even offering a child sacrifice. Instead of worshipping God sincerely, wholeheartedly, they erect altars to bow the gods of the Canaanites and worship idols. Instead of preserving a holy Levitical priesthood who would mediate between them and God for their sins, the Levites themselves are corrupt and are anything but holy. Now this period is often known as the period of the judges, and it goes for about 200 years up until 1050 BC. And for this entire time, the Israelites experience instability as a community and insecurity as a nation. And so by the time we get to the end of the book of Judges, it doesn't end on a high note but on a very somber note. A city is burned to the ground and one of the 12 tribes of Israel is almost completely annihilated. Israel wasn't a nation at peace. It was a nation in crisis. Everyone did as they pleased, like there was no rule of law. We see this summarized in the very last verse of the very last chapter of the book of Judges. It says this, In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Now the author there implies that the solution to Israel's problem is a king. But before a king is appointed by God, a transitional leader is appointed by God. A leader not like the judges of old nor like the kings to come, but a transitional leader like Moses who will serve as judge, priest and prophet, and his name Samuel. And so as we begin our new series in 1 Samuel, we need to remember the crisis of Israel, the crisis that Israel faced. And it's only then that we can appreciate the importance of Samuel and his role in appointing God's first kings over Israel. Now in today's passage, we're introduced to Samuel's family. It wasn't a happy-go-lucky family, but a family in crisis. And the domestic troubles they faced as a family was a reflection of the troubles Israel faced as a nation. Verse 1 introduces us to his father, Elkanah. And verse 2 tells us where some of the troubles started. So please have a look at verse 2. He had two wives. Elkanah had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had none. Now we might think um, that it's normal for some women to be able to have children while others can't. But that wasn't actually the expectation of the Israelites. You see, before Israel entered the Promised Land, Moses preached to God's people. He exhorted them to obey God's laws, and if they did, they would be blessed. And that including, uh, included 
the blessing of children. And so we see this in Moses' sermon in Deuteronomy chapter 7, from verse 12 to 14. He says this to Israel, If you pay attention to these laws and are careful to follow them, verse 14, none of your men and women will be childless. None of your men and women will be childless. That's the promise of God, if they obey God's word. So what happened? Why is Hannah barren, infertile, and childless? Well, what's happened to God's promise in Deuteronomy? Well, it's certainly not because Penina was righteous and somehow Hannah was unrighteous, and so Penina had children and Hannah didn't have any. By all accounts, Hannah was faithful and obedient as an Israelite. The problem is that Israel continued to live in sin. They didn't obey God's laws. And so that meant God's promises weren't yet fulfilled. And so Hannah's infertility was a microcosm of Israel's problems. Hannah's troubles were a sad reflection of Israel's troubles. And if if being infertile wasn't bad enough, Hannah was provoked. Like having assaults rubbed into an open womb or being kicked in the guts when you're already down, Penina taunted her for being childless. How cruel is that? Verse 6, because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. When Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and could not eat. Every year, Elkanah would take the whole family to the tabernacle in Shiloh. You see that in verse 3. And every year, Penina would taunt Hannah because she was childless. Now, we don't know exactly what Penina said, but you can just imagine how awful Hannah must have felt. It, was, it wasn't bad enough to be barren, to be deliberately provoked by the rival to your husband's affections, who had no problems having children of her own, would rub salt into your open wound and to make things worse for you. Hannah must have been filled with grief upon grief. She must have felt like her struggles were hers alone to bear. And I wonder whether she even felt like life was really unfair. Why was she barren but Penina wasn't? What did she do to deserve having a closed wound? Why would God bless a horrible person like Benina with children and not her who's trying to do the right thing? Sometimes life isn't fair, is it? Have you ever felt that way? Sometimes criminals get away with murder. Sometimes bad things happen to good people. We we see this in society, in our lives, and sometimes in workplaces, wherever it might be, sometimes life feels really unfair. A few years ago, a friend of mine was diagnosed with a lung cancer. He lived a simple life. He was a faithful husband, a loving father, and a really committed Christian. He had never smoked a cigarette in his life. And out of the blue, he began to feel unwell. So he went to the doctors to get his checks, and he was diagnosed with lung cancer. Within a month, his his lung cancer developed from stage 1 to stage 4. And just weeks before he died, I visited him. He could barely talk. But he managed to say to me, 
This is God's will. Don't know why, but trust him. So, keep praying. My friend left behind a grieving wife, a couple of daughters, and my friend could have blamed God for his sickness. He could have blamed God for treating him unfairly. He had been a good Christian, a faithful disciple. He didn't deserve this. He didn't even smoke. But my friend didn't do any of that. He didn't blame God. He didn't complain about being treated unfairly. He remained faithful. He kept trusting. He kept praying. Maybe you're struggling with something at the moment and you feel life's unfair. That you've been doing your best to be a good Christian, but you feel that God doesn't have your back. If that's the case, let me encourage you not to give in to despair. Cry out to God and don't give up on God. You can trust him. You can depend on him. So sometimes I, don't, I feel I don't even know what to pray to God at such times as these. And at those times, what I do is I pray the Psalms to God. Even when the Psalms begin by questioning God, the Psalms always end with an expression of faith in God. The Psalms give me the words to cry out to God. You see, God wants to hear our cries to him. He wants us to express how we really feel. But he also wants to know that we will still trust him, that we do trust him, that he knows best, even when we don't understand why. Now, God didn't heal my friend as he earnestly prayed, but my friend kept his faith to the very end. You see, when you feel you deserve nothing, you'll be thankful for everything. God doesn't owe us anything, but we owe God everything. That's the lesson people like Penina need to learn, isn't it? She was clearly blessed by God with children, but she took it for granted. Instead of being grateful to God for his blessing and becoming a comfort to Hannah, she became arrogant and thought of herself better than Hannah, even though being able to have children wasn't ultimately up to her, but up to God. Friends, we must never be like Penina, arrogant and using our words to tear others down. We must always be like Hannah, humble and crying out to God in our distress. You see, even though life wasn't fair for Hannah, she trusted in God anyway. And she expressed that trust in prayer, just like my friend did just like all the psalmists do. So verse 11, she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant but give her a son, then I'll give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. Hannah's problems drive her to God. She she doesn't just accept her situation. She pleads with God because of her situation. 
And so she pours her heart out to God. She throws upon him her anguish and her grief. And so what happened? Did God answer her prayer? Verse 20. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, Because I asked the Lord for him. God answered her prayer and gave her a son. What an amazing miracle. You can just imagine how happy Hannah was when she found out she was pregnant. It was nothing short of a miracle. So does that mean that if we pray in earnest like Hannah did, if we're really sincere and pour our heart out to God, if we get the right formula, we can trigger God's good side and he'll answer positively towards our requests. Well, it doesn't mean that, does it? There must have been countless other childless women in Israel at that time earnestly praying to God for a child. But they may not have received a child, as Hannah did. You see, we're told of this story of Hannah not because it's typical, but precisely because it's atypical. Like the few women before her who were also barren, but would bear a son and change the course of Israel's history. Like Abraham's wife Sarah, who gave birth to Isaac at 90 years old. Like Isaac's wife Rebecca, who was barren for the first 20 years of her marriage before God opened her womb so that she would give birth to twin boys Jacob and Esau. Or like Jacob's wife Rachel, who was childless before God gave her Joseph and Benjamin. And now Hannah has given birth to Samuel, who will not only be a prophet, priest, and judge in the order of Moses, but the one in whom God will appoint his king. You see, God's care for Hannah was his care for Israel. What he did for Hannah would turn out to be for Israel. And so true to her vow, when Samuel was probably three or four years old, Hannah took him to Shiloh and gave him to God. So back to our story about the British boys on the island. After Ralph collapsed at the beach, exhausted from running from Jack, he looked up and saw a British naval officer standing over him. The officer's ship had noticed a fire raging in the jungle and came to shore to see what was going on. When Ralph realises he was finally safe, he begins to weep. And when Jack and his boys arrive to murder Ralph, they see the officer, they don't kill Ralph, they too collapse and begin to sob. The boys have been completely out of control, but now they didn't need to be in control. Rescue had arrived, they were saved, they would return to where the weight of civilization didn't rest on their shoulders because it wasn't a responsibility that they could bear. Now you might have worked out by now that this story is fictional. It's from the book Lord of the Flies by William Golding. Golding went on to win the Nobel Prize in 1983 for literature. And part of the reason was his ability to accurately portray the human heart. You see, when Golding was a Navy officer in World War II, he came to realize what human beings were capable of doing to other human beings. Not as a result of witnessing the barbarism of the headhunters of New Guinea or the primitive tribes in the Amazon, 
but the atrocities committed by the well-educated professionals, such as doctors and lawyers and ordinary, everyday, educated people. This is what Golding had to say. I must say that anyone who moved through those years, that is, those years of war, without understanding that man produces evil as a bee produces honey, must have been blind or wrong in the head. Isn't that an astonishing assessment of the human heart? That man produces evil as a bee produces honey. These are very sobering words, aren't they? And they resonate with what the Bible says about our heart, don't they? We saw this recently in Mark chapter 7. The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. In Mark 7, Jesus tells us what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance and folly. All these evils come from the inside and defile a person. What the Bible tells us and what Golding observed in war was the experience of the Israelites during the time of the judges. Everyone did as they saw fit and it almost destroyed them as a nation and as a people of God. But just as God's answer to Israel's problem at that time lay with the most unexpected person, Hannah, so over 1,000 years later, God's answer to our problem lay with the most unexpected person. Who would have thought to look at a 13 or 14-year-old young girl in the town of Nazareth? who wasn't barren but a virgin, who wasn't from the capital city of Jerusalem but was living in an outback country town in Israel. And the son she would give birth to wouldn't just solve Israel's problem of oppression from Roman rule, but the world's problems of oppression from the reign of sin. And when her son found himself at a junction in his life, where the prospect of being separated from his heavenly father for the very first time consumed him, where the realization of being betrayed by one of his closest disciples and being deserted by his closest friends, where he would be mocked and ridiculed by the people he came to save and crucified for crimes that he did not commit. What he did to get through such a time as that wasn't to run, it wasn't to hide, and it certainly wasn't to blame God for how unfair life is. Because life is unfair, isn't it, friends? Life is unfair, but instead, what did he do? He did what Hannah did. He prayed. And so in the middle of the night, he went to the Mount of Olives, to the Garden of Gethsemane. He went by a rock and bent his knee at that rock. He bowed his head and clasped his hands, and he prayed to his Father in heaven. In Luke twenty-two forty-two, he said, Father, if you are willing, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Friends, Jesus didn't want to take the cup. He didn't want to drink upon the wrath of God for the sins of all humanity. He wanted another way. He was pleading for another way. 
Another way to solve the plight of humanity's sins, the problem of our hearts. His prayers were so earnest to God that we've been told in verse 44, his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. And the answer to Jesus' prayer wasn't his will, but the will of God his Father. Because after praying and petitioning and pleading with God all night, he received his answer. The soldiers arrived, that was the answer. He was arrested, that was the Father's will. God's answer to Jesus' prayer was that there wasn't any other way. And so Jesus was arrested. He was tried and he was crucified. Who would have thought that Jesus' prayer, the prayer of the Son of God, the innocent and righteous one, the one in whom there is no sin, would receive an answer to his prayer that would send him to the cross? You see, friends, the will of God, the plans of God, the purposes of God might be a mystery to us. We might not know why life can be really unfair sometimes. We don't know why some people cruise through life while others struggle through life. We don't know why God answers some people's prayers but not the prayers of others. But just as Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane had hoped for another way, it was ultimately for his good and ours that the will of the Father was done. Sometimes God's answers to our prayers like Israel's leadership crisis was not in the most obvious of places, but in the most unexpected of places. So friends, we must keep praying. We must keep trusting. We must keep believing that God is at work, that miracles can happen. And we must keep remembering that God's solution might not be our solution. So let's keep praying for God's will to be done in heaven and on earth and under the earth to the glory of God the Father. Amen.